Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. I just want to say, if you're feeling heavy of heart, I would recommend that you volunteer to do sound and uh, watch the kids dance around uh, during worship. It's, uh, it's pretty heartwarming. Um, it's a good thing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that, um, that it moves us, that it speaks to us, and that it transforms us more and more into your likeness. In Christ's name, amen. Now, um, oh, also, come to the lament service. I think, uh, you know, not, maybe not all of you have had somebody that you've lost in the past few years, but enough of us have. Enough of us have. And we're a community, right? And so we weep with each other, we sit with each other, we worship with each other. So I encourage you all to come uh, to the lament service on the 11th. Um, I think God was knowing something, because uh, honestly, I, I would not have planned a lament service whenever I was lamenting. But God planned something that way. <laughs> or maybe God didn't plan it that way. But God, but it happened. <laughs> and God's not going to let those opportunities go to waste. Now, um, I want to step back a little bit. Um, and I want to talk about World War II for a moment. Now, during World War II, you know, violence was tearing apart Europe. But England was a little bit lucky, right? Because it's an island nation, right? And it's separated from the rest of the continent by a channel of water. Um, and they didn't say, face the same immediate levels of threat as uh, the rest of Europe, as the rest of the continent. But early in the war, they were just really heavily bombed, right? That's the Battle of Britain, where Germany was trying to establish um, air superiority um, as a precursor to invasion. And so air sirens would go off in the middle of the night, and people would all have to turn off their lights to avoid um, giving the bombardiers targets. And then people in the darkness would have to make their way into basements, into bomb shelters. And the bombing was so bad that, uh, that the country mobilized to ship off like all the children in the cities to the countryside. And not just you know to the countryside, but like to Canada and to Australia. Like, Around the world, they're like, uh, yeah, kids aren't safe here. Our children aren't safe here. And you can actually see like the posters. Like, um, there's like, there's this poster I saw. It was, um, it was a mom, like holding her children, and uh, and there was it's like a ghost version of Hitler, like saying, saying, yeah, that's right, keep them with you, you know, <laughs> like, and you know, it, it was really like a scary poster. Um, so, like, the whole country mobilized to ship off the children. And if the children were lucky, right, they had family to go to. They had family that lived out in the country. And if not, um, there were strangers that volunteered. And there were some, like, camps and stuff that would take kids. Um, but it was in this context that uh, C.S. Lewis, um, an Oxford academic, um, professor of medieval literature, uh, was catapulted uh, to fame. 
uh, he, he'd written academic papers and studies and a few books on faith already. And he, he wrote his, uh, his first science fiction novel out of the silent planet then. Um, but uh, he wrote this one book that kind of captured a, a BBC editor's imagination called uh, The Problem of Pain. And it, it's all about pain and suffering and, and why evil exists. And so Lewis was invited to record something for the radio to help encourage the men and women of England during that time of loss. And so Lewis didn't really want to do it, and they went back and forth. But eventually, um, he wrote and recorded a series of talks on basic Christian belief. And not being a theologian or a pastor, right, because that's not his background. He was a medieval literature professor. Um, he invited an Anglican, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, and um, a Roman Catholic uh, theologian to edit and critique his talks uh, before he delivered them, just to make sure he was getting the basics correct, right, for everybody. And he explained his reasoning for these talks in the, uh, the preface of uh, Mere Christianity, which is kind of a reworking of all the talks into a book form. And he said, I'm a very ordinary layman of the Church of England, not especially high, nor especially low, nor especially anything else. But in this book, I'm not trying to convert anyone to my own position. Ever since I became a Christian, I have thought the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend the belief that had been common to nearly all Christians at all times. And that's, that's where he came up with mere Christianity. Um, that's where he gave those talks. Because in the midst of times of a despair and uncertainty, those talks uh, made Lewis a huge hit. Right? They, they became really, really big, big times. People like, you know, were, were quiet and you know, gathered around the radio to listen. And it made him a public figure for Christianity. Because he was able to persuade people that though the world they were experiencing was brutal and harsh, there is a plan. God has a plan. And we can live into that plan, fighting against the dark, or we can succumb to it. And just hearing that there was a plan kind of kindled something in the imagination of people that were struggling in the midst of the war. Um, there is something inherently hopeful about the Christian story in times of hardship. Uh, there's a reason why so many people that don't normally ever come to church, um, and when they're grieving in times of grief, they'll call us and they'll say, hey, um, can, you, can you do this funeral for my loved ones? Right? They, they would never come to church. You know, they would argue how they don't believe. But then they'd lose somebody they love. And they'll say, well, can, can we do the service here? Because people want to hope. People really want to hope. And they might not believe in the source of the hope. And they might be hurt and disillusioned with the concept of religion. And they might not believe in God or Jesus or any of it. But for most people, there's this longing, a hope for a better world. And this is Advent. Um, a four-week season in the church calendar that's based around waiting. It represents Israel waiting for the Messiah to come and our current waiting for the Messiah to return in his fullness. And each week of Advent, there's a different theme that's, that reflects an aspect of this time of waiting. And this week, the theme is hope. And uh, 
with that, we're going to read a section of scripture from the book of Isaiah. Um, and this is the, the Isaiah lectionary scripture for today. So um, we don't do this often, but um, if you don't mind humoring me, would you please rise and let's read this aloud together. This is the reading from um, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And, you know, start you right off with the funny names. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word from the Lord in Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train anyone for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, um, as I said, Isaiah 2 um, is the Old Testament lectionary text today, uh, 1 through 5. But um, if you know anything about math, uh, you would know that 2 comes after 1. And uh, Isaiah 1 is a brutal chapter. It's an ugly chapter because it exposes Israel's um, disobedience and hypocrisy. Um, and Isaiah is pleading with the people of, of Israel to repent. Actually, the people of Judah to repent. Letting them know that God can still forgive them. But he doesn't seem too hopeful that they will. And the world that Isaiah describes in chapter 1 is pretty bleak and horrible. And it describes a world of people that turn against each other. Everyone seeking their own gain. Where the weak are exploited and used. I'm going to move that my way. A world where people do what they want without restraint. And the end result of all of those, that work is their own destruction, their own self-destruction. It's a pretty dark and despairing chapter. That's chapter 1. In the first chapter, Isaiah describes the world as it is. A world that groans with violence and with ugliness, that each purchasely, selfishly looking after their own interests over another. And that, tr that chapter traces the outcomes of that, that world, which is nothing but emptiness. But there is a chapter 2. In, that, in chapter 2, Isaiah offers hope. Isaiah 2.1, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning the Lord, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In this first verse, he makes it clear that his vision is to the same people that his previous prophecy condemned. It's the same people. And, uh, you know, if you want to go back uh, to look at Trace chapter 1, you'll see it's ugly. But chapter 2 is to the same people. Chapter 1 ends with the destruction of the strong and everything that they're working towards. But chapter 2, 1 through 5, lets the people know after after everything seems like it's over and there seems like there's no life and nothing left, God is still at work. It's Isaiah 2.2. In the last days, 
the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Um, if you know anything about mythology, gods and goddesses are often described as living and ruling from on top of mountains. And that seems to be common across many cultures, that they live on top of these mountains. And Jerusalem is a, is a high mountain city. And Isaiah is saying it's God's temple is going to be there, right? Is there, you know, up high. And God's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, he's not saying that um, Jerusalem is going to be physically taller than every other place in the world. It's not like every other mountain is going to get smushed down. But he's saying that everything that tries to act as God in the world is going to self-destruct. Every idol, every false god, every want-to-be-strong man cannot sustain itself. At the end of chapter 1, everything that was strong, everything that thought was dominant, is going to end up destroying itself. But in Isaiah chapter 2, we still see that there's one thing that remains, and that's God. God remains. And everyone, all people will come and say, let's go up to the mountain. Let's go be with God. Let's learn from God. Let's worship that God. Uh, verse 3. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God, temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When everything seems hopeless, when all life seems over, God is still there. God is there and God offers hope, offering a new home, a new way of living, Right? That's not based on the patterns of the world, but based on God's way. Okay? Everything's over. Everything's destroyed. But the temple of the Lord is there. People are like, hey, let's go live that way. Let's go be there. And that's often where we meet God. I mean, many of us um, have rationally thought through our faith. Uh, many of us have. Uh, many of us have honored God with our minds, have studied scripture, and thought about philosophies, and decided, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. And some of us, right, some of us, uh, we received faith that was handed down to us from our elders, and we accepted that, and we've nurtured that faith. Right? So that's some, how some of us have come to faith. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I don't want to play down those things. But for many of us, it's when things are desperate, and when it seems like there is no longer any way, when it seems like nothing in this world offers hope, that's when you meet Jesus. That's when we truly have an experience with Jesus. And it makes sense. That's what Jesus says, right? Um, Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Right? When we're desperate, that's what we discover, what we really believe in. When we're hurt. When we feel like we have nowhere to turn. And, uh, and I pray in those moments that you, that you find Jesus and that you... Did you experience deliverance in Jesus? Now, and I pray that after that moment, you allow yourself to continue to be discipled, to continue to be shaped, to continue to be changed, so that you can learn his ways and walk in his paths. Because I do think everybody has those moments. Whether you're high, whether you grew up in the faith, or whether you stumbled into it, whether you thought your way there, or wherever you felt your way there, every one of us is going to be brokenhearted at some point and be disillusioned at some point, and think, no, I've been lied to. This doesn't work. 
and I pray that you might meet the Lord there. And according to Isaiah, the whole world will have that moment. Verse 4. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords in the plowshares, their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. All the nations come. All the people come. Um, remember the world at that time, it's, it's a lot like the world in this time, where um, different nations act as if they're superior, act as if they're better. Um, and when the civilizations come into contact, there's a jockeying for position. Right? Who's going to be dominant? Who's the tough guy on the block? Who's superior and who's inferior? In that world, the losers were often made into slaves or second-class citizens. And that's how the world worked. And Israel knew that, right? Because that was their history. They were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And after Isaiah writes this, um, in about 100 years or so, uh, the nation of Judah is going to experience the whole thing again because they're going to go into slavery because Babylon's going to take them over and they're going to get conquered and they're going to go right back into slavery too. They're going to experience that, right? Different people competing. But this vision in chapter 2, it looks past exile and it looks past slavery and it looks past destruction. It looks past the time when people are subjected to one another and it sees a time of equity and inclusions for all the nations of the world where all the people are welcome, where all the people can come. And God will not just be a God of a chosen select few, but God will be God of all. And the nations of the world will not uh, go to war to settle their arguments. They will not destroy one another. Instead, they'll let the, George, the Lord judge between them. And all the goods, all of the energy, all the thought that goes into making weapons of warfare will be turned into farming equipment, to tools of life. Everything that went to tear down and kill will be used to build up and to give life. And then Isaiah ends the section with an encouragement to the people to walk in the light of the Lord. To live this vision of humanity now. Um, church, uh, the world is a lot like Isaiah chapter 1. We live in a world that seems to have forgotten God, where the weak are exploited and used, where people seek after their own interests despite the needs of others. But there's a hunger. I, I sincerely believe that there's a hunger for something different, for something better in most people. And this is something I say every Christmas, but I swear, church, listen to me, because it's true. You can condemn the world for the crassness and commercialism of Christmas. There is plenty to condemn. I mean, we're spending our way into a global recession, right? You can condemn it. And you can condemn the world for trivializing the birth of Jesus and making it about cheesy romance movies and schmaltzy songs. Um, I understand. I have a hard time sitting through most Christmas, Christmas movies. I do. And you can condemn the world for gaudy lights and trees and tinsel and everything else. But, but, but... Every ugly Christmas sweater covers a heart that is broken and hurt and hungry for healing. And every tedious work party is a cry for community and belonging and meaning. 
and every twinkling Christmas light's like an emergency flare, pleading for someone to come and rescue them. And that's the thing I love about Christmas, is that the world shows how desperate it is for something to be good. The world just shows, like, I just want something to be good, for something to work out, for there to be an alternative to the desperate, broken, normative course of the world. And ultimately, I believe, for something to worship. And I, and I do think the world's misplaced on how they look for those things. I don't deny it. But they're hungry for it. They want it. Um, Friday night, I watched the Gardens of the Galaxy holiday special. I don't know if any of you watched that yet. Um, it's pretty funny. Um, it's a somewhat irreverent take on Christmas. Uh, but there's the song there, sung by the band The Old 97s. And uh, these are not spoilers, so don't worry. But um, in the band... Um, in the special, there, there's the, the band, is, they're dressed up like aliens, and they write a song about Christmas, but they've misinterpreted almost every Christmas tradition. They got almost everything wrong. And the last line of the chorus of the song is, I don't know what Christmas is, but Christmas time is here. And I feel like that is the world right there. I don't know what this is like, but this, this is it. We're here, desperate to participate, desperate to celebrate, desperate to receive something, desperate to be saved. Even if they don't quite recognize the desperation and all that it means, they just want to know, they already know that the everyday patterns of this world doesn't work. They're not working, and they want something more, something better, something meaningful. And so they use this time. They use Christmas to express their desire for hope, for something better. Now, why would we want to bah humbug that? Why would you want to ball humbug them? Especially since we know that hope, that hope is going to be fulfilled. That longing is going to come to fruition. Right? Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be open. At Christmas time, the whole world is knocking. The whole world is knocking. The whole world is seeking. And Jesus, Jesus isn't hide. He wants to be found. He wants to be found. Jesus wants to be known. And eventually he will be known, right? By every, every eye will see, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue shall acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Jesus wants to be found. Jesus will be found. People, I, I believe in the hope of Jesus Christ. I believe that it's real and it's for you and for your neighbor and your friend and your coworker and for that guy, that one person at work that just bugs you. I believe that. And I know that the world can be ugly and unfair and can seem hopeless. But there's still a longing for hope, for something better. And that better's name is Jesus. Uh, I started this message talking about C.S. Lewis because often when I'm sad and, and honestly, I'm, I'm, I've been really sad these days, I, I like to go back and reread the Chronicles of Narnia because um, they're fun <laughs> and they give me hope. And part, because part of the reasons why I love them is because they're all stories about Jesus and how he works in the world, but it's all wrapped up in children's stories. And in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it describes the magical land of Narnia, right? A land of magic and wonder, but that's enslaved, and it's stuck. 
um, it's described as the land frozen in time, um, where it's always winter and never Christmas. But of course, eventually, Christmas comes to Narnia. And that's a good description of this world, too. Right? Always winter and never Christmas. At least that's the way it seems, right? Where our world is stuck in the middle of winter, where things appear dead and it's dark and it's cold and it can be dangerous to be out. But in our world, in our winter world, it is not, not really, it's not always winter and never Christmas. In our world, just like in Narnia, Christmas comes. Christmas comes because no one, no authority, no principality, no government, no social media platform, no news agency, no power on earth, above earth or below earth can stop the coming of God. Christmas is coming. Praise God. Hope is on the way. And that is what we celebrate. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're yearning for, hoping for. That's what we want in our bones for a resurrection, right? For that which was dead be made alive for Jesus to come again in his fullness and his glory and to join in celebration. Please pray with me. Holy Father God, I thank you for your goodness, for your graciousness, Lord. I thank you for a Savior that wants to be found, Lord. And I pray for a world that is hungry for hope. Lord, I pray I pray that all, all the stirring, all the, all the Christmas trappings we find ourselves in can nurture that hunger, can nurture that desire for something better, for something deeper, for something real that does not follow the patterns of this world, Lord. Lord, I pray for you. I pray for you to enter into our worlds, to enter into our lives and to assume your rightful place, Lord, as king of our hearts, king of our world, as Lord of heaven and earth. In Christ's name, amen. Worship team.